Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions. When justice gives blind eyes to billions. When the Lord's anger is no longer feared. If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio On the Black Talk Radio Network A program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate On the issue of 21st century legalized slavery Currently hosted by social activists and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed with commentary by guests and callers like Otis Griffin. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the October 10th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. On October 11th, in the year 1972, approximately 50 inmates at the Washington, D.C. jail seized control of a cell block and held 12 jail officials hostage, demanding improved jail conditions and reductions in jail overcrowding. Also on this day, in 1865, Paul Bogle led the last large-scale armed Jamaican rebellion for voting rights and an end to legal discrimination and economic oppression against African Jamaicans. Because of his efforts, Bogle was recognized as a national hero in Jamaica in 1969. His face appears on the Jamaican $2 bill and 10-cent coin. As always, there is a lot to report and even more to discuss. It's extremely important that someone provide a slavery abolitionist perspective in this world of reform or no reform, we are the third alternative, which should have been the first. Courtesy of listener Jess Amos, our, I'm hoping I'm saying your last name right, Ames or Amos, our abolitionist in profile tonight is Real Cheadle, abolitionist, teacher, peddler, keel boatman, and maker of pewter buttons. Courtesy of listener Michael Williams, in the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember the Creole case of November 1841. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Desmond Ricks, 51, a Detroit man who served 25 years in prison for murder based on sham evidence, was released in May after new tests supports his remarkable claim that Detroit police intentionally pinned him with a homicide in 1992. You got a question or a comment? Want to join the conversation? 
You can call toll-free at 1-866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, what's up to you abolitionists? Max Parthas. Great to hear yes, your sir. voice, man. I miss you already, man. I already expressed <laughs> to you privately, you know, I, I feel some kind of way about you leaving South Carolina. I mean, you know, that's a lot closer than Ohio, but, hey, you got to go where the work takes you. Yes, yes. Well, I don't know if i ever going to call anything like what we do with work, man. <laughs> but, yeah, I got to go where this is, is seemingly taking us, you know. It and, absolutely uh, is work. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> is work, and somebody's got to do it, and you've been a tireless soldier. It takes work. It, slavery's not going to end itself. Slavers are not going to bring an end to the system of slavery. So it's going to take people like you, Max, and our listeners to do it. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. Now, I'm going to miss South Carolina. This will be my last broadcast here from South Carolina if everything goes according to plan. But you know plans, what happened with those. But uh, I'll find out for sure tomorrow uh, when our friends are coming in from Ohio and their plan is to just go ahead and pack us up and take us and let's go. (laughs) You know, and then from there we go to Ghana and uh, we'll spend a month in Ghana. And then when we come back, We'll be meeting up uh, with our brother Tut in Atlanta, who runs Political Prisoner Radio, which you spoke with, Scotty Reed, and uh, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., and we'll be organizing some things on behalf of political prisoners there in Atlanta in December. That's going to be a big thing, too. Max, thank you for, because he contacted me, but his, his he contacted me on Facebook. Um, that's the brother that Greg took to the airport, right? from Washington, D.C.? Okay, so we talking about... Yeah, I I remember he did the Political Prisoner Radio program. I was just talking today about on BTR News how we used to have Political Prisoner Radio, but because of uh, um, circumstances out of people's control, we had to end that program. And I was speaking to him briefly about bringing it to Black Talk Radio and simulcasting it or publishing the podcast and what have you. So... If you would, could, while I remember now, just get me his contact information after tonight's program because I, I can't I'll even find his, his Facebook profile because, you know, we don't always use our real names on Facebook. So, all right. Tut is a, a, a true human hyperlink, like all of these political prisoners, the ones that you know so well and whose life stories are in books and all of that. Those are the close friends of his. Like he's in direct contact with those who are still living and his the family of those who have passed away. So like he's right at the center of all of this. And I think he can make some major changes in uh, you know what's going on and be great assistance to the abolitionist movement. If he comes on Black Talk Radio Network, that is going to be an awesome thing. So yeah, man, uh, it's been a it's been a week and it's a little melancholy here because you know we're saying goodbye. Like I said to Brother Davis, we've made some accomplishments. Two of them in particular, I will be proud of when we walk away. And I guess the third that I'll be proud about is that there's a lot of people down here whose passions have been pushed forward to the forefront about this issue. Stirred. Well educated, <laughs> passion yeah. stirred. I mean, if you can't get passionate about ending slavery, then you you might well be dead. Well, it takes some explaining sometimes. We live in a world where you literally got to explain to people what slavery looks like and how it works. Like, are you serious right now? Yes, you have to do that. 
And then you got to offer them an you know an options on what to do. Unlike the thirteenth, the documentary, one of its flaws, it didn't offer any options on what we should do. It didn't even mention abolition as an alternative. So you got to do those things too. It's just strange, Scotty, but we really got to describe slavery to people. And we be and you and I and all the, all the abolitionists. I mean, we tell them everything you can imagine. Pre eighteen sixty five is happening in some shape or form right now in this injustice system. You just pick something, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I'll show it to you right now. Like today is one of the stories that's coming out today about the gladiator uh, fights in a juvenile detention facility out in Florida. And the media had to do this, again, groundbreaking reporting and, 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 and you know researching to discover what was going on here where these children, because that's what they are, were being brutalized, forced into fights by the guards themselves, um, betting on the fights. The guards would have teens sometimes sexually molest other children uh, for their benefit. <laughs> you know, it's just a terrible story, man. That's something you would think about in 1860. You know what I mean? Not in 2017 with children in a, in a for-profit prison. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'll put the story up a new abolitionist. Yeah, that's radio. not yeah, something most people, they wouldn't see it in the context of slavery. So, you know, again, that's why we came together um, five years ago for the education piece. You know, people need to be educated on this issue, and we're starting to see the fruits of those la- of that labor for five years, which resulted in a documentary, a number of hip-hop uh, songs that's mentioning slavery was never abolished, uh, statements from major celebrities on, on slavery, not really promoted majorly, but, you know, like Common, Common, uh, that piece we ran uh, when they were at the White House. And, yes, at and, the White House. Yeah, and, and, and saying that. So what, was, what were they saying? Freedom gonna come or, or something? But an acknowledgement that slavery was never Abolished. And talked about the Thirteenth Amendment right there in the White exactly, House. Exactly, exactly. So Second you know, Amendment thirteen. <laughs> so we just had to keep doing that and educate more people because we keep seeing that abolitionists multiply. If you can explain in such a way, you have to sometimes come down to people levels, and you have to use different metaphors sometimes. But that's why I don't like metaphors like professional athletes making multi-millions of dollars every year are slaves. When we got people who are in pens in cages that they call prison sewing the American flag that the the NFL players are taking a knee to raise the issues of an element of slavery, which is police brutality. So when you could break it down, make those connections, I, you know... Uh, you can't. You don't have any other option but to be an abolitionist or to be pro-slavery. And by your silence, you pro-slavery on that issue. If you're calling it anything else, you're a hindrance to to that effort to stir passions in in the masses to rebel against this evil system of slavery. Yes, sir. One hundred percent. So. Um yeah, man, Gladiator freaking school for children. Uh, it's a hell of a story. It's one of a number of stories that we got today to go over. In the meantime, you know, you look at uh, mainstream media and their concerns is who called who, a moron, and what this idiot in 
the presidency is saying today, well, he never makes any damn sense anyway. He just, like, this dude is leading us to the brink of annihilation. And uh, we got a bunch of courtesans that are sitting behind cameras, more concerned being getting attention from him or not getting it than they are with reporting the truth. So how has your week been? And um, I'm sorry, before man. I say that, actually, is Otis also on the air with us? Otis, you there, brother? Yeah, he he's on the line. He just hasn't unmuted hey, himself. Oh, oh yes, I'm he... here. I'm I'm inspired. I'm I'm listening to you talk about it. It's a constant battle. Everything I see when I see the tentacles of slavery hitting on everything. I just finished sending a message to a, a law professor out of the University of Georgia. She wrote an excellent book talking about color of money, black banks, and the racial wealth. She's a law professor, and they're taunting her now with this book review, and as soon as I go across a little excerpt they give me, and it says she tracks the persistence of the racial wealth gap from the end of slavery till today. I had to send her a long diatribe and tell her, I don't know how you can do that kind of research, come up with an excellent book, and you're talking about the end of slavery. How could you read the 13th Amendment and tell me, as a law professor, that slavery has ended. She didn't read the 13th Amendment. There's an exception clause, and I take issue with it. So I'm, I'm waiting to get uh, some feedback from her because I had to stay on her and tell her in the second edition of this book, you need to have that corrected. Slavery has not ended. We Otis, have signs of slavery. Yes? What you, what you should do, as a representative of, of the new abolitionist movement, Start inviting these people. Don't go. Don't don't give them the diatribe just yet. Say that for on air and and invite oh. them to new abolitionists. Well, you hey. already you yeah. already know that's exactly what I do. I send it to her and, and bookmarked it and told her if you don't believe it, you can listen it tonight. We have some of the most well versed individuals around the country. They have, we get a powwow every Wednesday at eight o'clock. You're welcome to join us, and you can get with Scotty Reed. If you'd like to do some commentary, that's exactly what I tell them. You can join us in the audience that gets it straight. Slavery has never ended, and that's what we're about. Abolition of slavery. We're not trying to abolish prisons. We're not trying to abolish the prison, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Industrial complex. From from, uh, illegal aliens. None of that. We're trying to do away with the exception clause so we can do away with all of the injustices. All of the injustice. All of them. Everything, you... everything in line with it. Right. The domino effect. Just, just hit it where it hurts. Kill the, kill the root and we'll reap the, plot, the plant later. We'll do something else with it. <laughs> hey, Max, I like that analogy that you just used. You know, going back to Tando Radio Show, uh, as you mentioned, being part of the effort to remove that battle flag from their capital and and being a part of that but that's the dominoes effects again sometimes yes. it's just you gotta tip something you can't you just can't stand there and stare at the dominoes and think that they're gonna start falling you gotta use some energy to put if you just push that one domino then the rest will fall so we gotta push as many dominoes till we find that key domino and it's all gonna fall and I say that key domino is slavery if you if you don't name it, there's nothing you can do to claim it or dismantle it. Call right. it what it is, slavery. Call it what it is. And we all need to come together under that. It's, it's not an adjective. 
like uh, employees that get called out at their work, it is a noun. It is people enslaved, but put in cages and caught it all over this country, flown all over this country. Air, they have complete airlines and trucking and busing industries that move slaves around, bodies, human beings. It's slavery. It's active slavery. today and it's a multi-billion dollar industry serving everything from food to your Frito-Lay and your uh, McDonald's fry package. Everything. There's nothing it doesn't touch, including was, your home. I was asked not too long ago, a few weeks ago, by one of my comrades in the abolitionist movement uh, about why it's so important that we call this slavery because that was one of the things that I kept pushing forward in my speech in D.C. That was what I talked about. It's very important that we name this thing, that we call it what it is. If it's good enough for the Constitution, it's good enough for your lips. So the question is not why aren't we calling it slavery, but why aren't you calling it slavery? I mean, what is the, what is the motive that a person can't say this is slavery. You got to find all these different synonyms and all these different sound likes or kind of likes or almost likes or comparisons to the point where you're even saying things like slave wages. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, where do you think that comes from? When you're talking about people in prison getting slave wages, <laughs> it's like you can't add two and two together. It's important because we can prosecute people for slavery. We can hold people accountable for slavery. We can free people who have been Enslaved. Those are these are all things that are you know international laws we can work with and national laws. But when it comes to mass incarceration, there is no law against that. There's nothing that protects you from mass incarceration. There's nothing to protect you from police tearing. There's nothing to protect you from uh, injustice in the courts. Those things just keep going on. There's nothing to protect you from racism in the courts in the way that they're applied today. But there is there are things that can protect you from slavery. There are ways where we can hold these slavers accountable for their crimes. And that is the key difference. That's why I don't want to abolish prisons. And we should get into some of these articles uh, as we only got, you know, like an hour. I think we covered two of them already. Yeah, yeah, but let's <laughs> name them so the people, and I'm sure you've been posting them to uh, our page. Yes. On, yeah, New Abolitionist Radio on, on Facebook, but... See, that's the issue. One of the articles, if we could go into that, whoever has okay. that up, if we could go into that article that's talking about prison abolition and saying abolition, 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 and never mention slavery. Yeah. Uh, see, I, I took issue with that because I don't want people to get this abolitionist movement that I'm a part of through this program in our groups Um to think that I want to abolish prison because we got to have a place to put these slavers, okay? That's my biggest argument right there that's holding people accountable. We're going to put these, we ain't going to put them into slavery. We're going to put them to work, but we're going to pay them for their work. But, hey, they got to be held accountable. And, and, and so I'm not about to abolish prisons. Am I for putting people in cages and all that? I mean, prison is just a name for a place, okay? Um, so it can be more humane, but um, I don't. I'm, I'm not into because see, then you're talking about home confinement. You know where you where you wear an ankle monitor. That's still an element of slavery. Okay, so I'm not into abolishing prisons. I'm into abolishing slavery. That has been putting some confusion in people's minds who are not well versed on this issue. 
and because somebody asked me today, said, oh, I'm glad you cleared that up when I said I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to abolish slavery, not prisons, okay? If you abolish slavery, then you won't, you'll see the prisons disappear. You won't need so many of them, but we still need a place to put Dick Cheney, um, um, any of these CEOs and profiteers from, from slavery, uh, when we had that day that slavery ended that Max wrote about. But that person said to me, I'm glad you cleared that up because I have many stupid questions. There are no stupid questions, sir. And you are welcome to call in and ask those questions. Um, and, and we'll give you an answer. So no, I, people who rape people, who murder people, who engage in criminal, who engage in slavery. Uh, yeah, I, we want to put them in prison. So I'm not about to uh, allow myself to be connected to any kind of prison abolition movement because I, I don't know what that is. Well, you know, um, the word abolition has been around a long time and we are not certainly not the first to promote the uh, 13th Amendment. We have been among the most successful to get it out there in the way that it is right now. And that's thanks to uh, the right people at the right time with the right technology. It's just as simple as that. And uh, anyway, The Abolitionist is a magazine that was launched by Critical Resistance back in 2005. So back in 2005, they were already putting out magazines called The Abolitionists, and they were had adopted the uh, slavery abolitionist, I guess, mantle as their successors, but they had applied it towards prison abolitionists and abolitionism. And this was a lot to do with uh, people like, Angela Davis, you know, who really wanted to aim more at getting rid of prisons out of our system. She was a person that inspired me to become a slavery abolitionist, like like literally, because of the way she broke it down. But nonetheless, they've been working at this for a while. And here we come along with the slavery abolition aspect, and we did create a lot of waves. We did uh, cause a lot of people to become more and more aware of the 13th Amendment and slavery ab- uh, uh, abolition. But uh, it seems to me like they're purposely not mentioning any of that in these articles like they really want people to just focus on prison abolition and the key difference between slavery abolition and prison abolition is only one of us thinks this is a crime against humanity only one of us thinks that the people who are doing this needs to be held accountable only one of us thinks that we can get rid of most of the prisons simply by ending the process of a slave trade where people are captured in the streets, hunted, criminalized, demonized, then put to work for free inside these cages and also sold on the open market in the form of prison stocks and jail bonds. We see this as a crime against humanity, not as a mistake that we can, can be corrected, not as some error in judgment that you can now come up and fix it and make things better. So that's the key difference from my perspective. I mean, if they saw it as a crime against humanity, they would be fighting it as such. Right, Not talking right. about, you know, abolishing prisons. So right. we've got to get on the same page with this. And until we do, there's going to be a narrative war. And there's got to be a reason behind each side's motives as to presenting this particular argument in this way without being willing to listen to reason on either side. Again, now, Max, we listen to it. Max, my point is, is that too many people talking about symptoms and not the disease. Mm-hmm. 
and we're di- right. they're diagnosing symptoms and not making a connection that this is the cancer, okay? That, that, that runny nose is really not a runny nose, but it's the beginning stages of HIV. You know what I'm saying? So, yes. so you know. The bigger picture. The bigger picture, okay? The cancer that we have to cut out. And so a prison is just a building. I'm not trying to abolish buildings. I'm trying to abolish an institution of slavery, okay? Those buildings are just part of an institution. That's where they they warehouse the bodies. That's right. where, where they work the bodies. That's where they lease out the bodies. And so, you know, I'm trying to, to me, I have to cut out the cancer, and the cancer is slavery. It says so right there in the Constitution. If the con- 13th Amendment said, it, it, this, if this is what it said instead of what it actually says, if it said slavery and involuntary servitude shall be abolished, period, in the United States of America and all territories that it's occupying and holding against people's will, that it'll be no slavery, period, then I might uh, go along with the diagnosis of mass incarceration or over-policing or something like that because slavery was, was abolished. So so it's got to be, we, we got to find what's the root cause. But since the Constitution says that invalid, slavery and involuntary servitude shall be abolished except as punishment for crime where a person has been duly convicted in a court by their peers, and I'm paraphrasing now, and that duly convicted, as Otis pointed out to me, doesn't mean a just conviction, doesn't mean the person was actually convicted, I mean uh, guilty, it just means we went through the legal process. And so they have constructed a legal process by which to put people into slavery, and that's why I'm focused on slavery and not to build away with the legal vehicle that enslaves a human being and subjects them to being housed like an animal and used for profit, to take away their liberties, to treat them less than human. That is the problem, having a legal vehicle to enslave a human being and call it justice. We need to do away with that. We want the people who have been been inhumane and have worked in a system that they know is corrupt. We want them in prison. We want them to suffer the fate that they heaped on people that they knew were innocent. We want to take away that vehicle. Slavery needs to be abolished. And take those people out of power. Let me read some of this article here that we're referring to. Uh, Everything that we talk about, we put it on New Abolitionist Radio on our Facebook page, and it's also on the uh, Black Talk community page as well under Abolitionist. Black Talk Radio Network community page under Abolitionist. So if you're not a member, you should uh, become one so you can see it there, so you can follow the conversation. Scotty, you may have noticed lately, I've been trying instead of just like reading through the whole stories to incorporate them into the conversation you know, and talk about them in that way to be able to try to get a few more stories out where people can do some work, you know what I mean? And go look at the actual articles and read them every now and then, other than us having to read them word for word. But let's go with this one uh, here. It's from Portside, and it's called What Abolitionists Do. Abolitionists, abolition has always been a bold project, whether in response to private property and 19th century chattel slavery, 
or the prison industrial complex of the last half century. Abolitionist movements have uns... Okay, there's already an error in the logic of what they, ju they just said of the last half century. Like in 1928, they didn't uh, allegedly abolish convict leasing in Alabama. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they weren't using convict leasing back then. But anyway, okay, let me read the rest of it because I could do that on damn every line. The stubborn immediacy of the demand disturbs those who hope for resolution of intractable social problems within the confines of the existing order. To them, abolition is unworkably <clears throat> utopian and therefore not pragmatic. Critics often dismiss prison abolition without a clear understanding of what it even is. Some on the left, most recently Roger Lancaster and Jacobin, described the goal of abolishing prisons as a fever dream, demand to destroy all prisons tomorrow. But Lancaster's disregard for abolition appears based on a reading of a highly idiosyncratic an unrepresentative group of abolitionist thinkers and evinces little knowledge of decades of abolitionist organizing and its powerful impacts. To us, people with a combined several decades of experience... Oh, my God. Uh, really, is this where we're at now? We're pulling out our experience card. Look at my degree. I got a degree. You want to see three more? Come on, now. Like, the average person don't know what the hell abolition is and can't learn. Anyway... In the prison abolitionist movement, abolition is both a lodestar and a practical necessity. Central to abolitionist work are the many fights for non-reformist reforms. These measures, these measures that reduce the power of an oppressive system while illuminating the system's inability to solve the crisis it creates. The late Rose Braz, a longtime staffer and member of Critical Resistance, emphasized this point in the 2008 interview. A prerequisite to seeking any social change is the naming of it, she said. In other words, even though the goal we seek may be far away, unless we name it and fight for it today, it will never come. Man, I couldn't agree anymore with that statement. This is the starting point of abolition, connecting a radical critique of prisons and other forms of state violence with a broader transformative vision. I'm going to read one more paragraph and that's it. That's about all I can have. These strategies and tactics harmonize with, inspire, and are inspired by many other left traditions. Socialists, why is this a left tradition? Okay, anyway. Socialists do not fight for trade unions in order to institutionalize capitalist social relations or build an aristocracy of labor. They do so in order to create durable structures that undermine the power of employer, employers to exploit workers. And they do so with a radical humanist tradition in mind as well, to make actual people's lives better, to overcome sexual harassment, to reduce workplace injuries, to build solitary among, so, so, uh, solidarity among workers, and ideally to create the new world in the shell of the old. Such an analysis is also reflective in abolitionist organizing. As Braz emphasized in another 2008 interview, prisons and horrible conditions go hand in hand. Prisons are about punishment, warehousing, and control. The prison industrial complex, PIC, systematically undermines the very values and things we need to be healthy. Okay, that's as far as I want to go through on this one right there. Okay, uh, I, comments? I, 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 spe I speed read, or some people call it speed reading, looking for one word. Slavery. Slavery. <laughs> I did not find that word. Okay. <laughs> they may have gone back and edited and added the Stare. word. 
But you know, again, it's in you, the very beginning, it yeah. says uh, whether in response to private property in nineteenth-century chattel slavery or, and that's the only place it's listed. That's it. Okay, so I missed that one. All right, but it, it's not. It's very convoluted. It is just mentioning too many different things. Did I hear the term non-reformist reform? I was like, what the hell? What what the hell is what that? It was a lot of what the hell are you talking about? It's like you just use these big words that mean and then you, you generalize and the left does this and socialists do that. And I'm like, well, who, who the hell talks like that anymore? That's why you got all of these degrees, huh? Because you talk like that. The, again, okay. the, taking it back to my analogy between a disease and symptoms. So they talking about wiping somebody's nose. They're going to wipe Uncle Sam's nose or they're going to wipe Donald Trump's nose and and we're going to get these reforms implemented while slavery still exists. While his Wall Street buddies and private prison uh, investors are just raking in the dough as they keep raking in bodies. You know? So uh, uh, again, it's not, we don't want to, that's what we've been doing for the past 50 to 60 years is treating symptoms and not coming up with the cure. And so I would say the critical resistance that it is very critical that you start naming what you're resisting and not give us all these different things. Because like Malcolm X said, man, you can't, you can't make it that complicated for a very uneducated mass of people. And we know that the education system has has prevented people from critically thinking and dumbing them down and not presenting to a a a high school student the text of the thirteenth amendment. How are you gonna go over the Civil War and then you're not gonna discuss the meetings and the letters that Lincoln had with Confederates to come to a compromise to end the war and keep slavery going and then read the 13th Amendment and then have an open classroom discussion on that. So we we know that this has purposely been hidden. So that's all I would say to them is that is that you're diluting, you're diluting the movement. You're confusing people. You are scattering people in different directions when it all should be under the um, umbrella of slavery, abolition, not prison abolition. That's a symptom of slavery, because if you get rid of slavery, if prison, if I cure slavery, then that symptom that is represented by that prison you're talking about, obviously it's going to go away. Yeah, it's it's really a misrepresentation of what you're trying to accomplish here because what you're actually doing is reforming the system. That's that's your goal is to reform it. World with no prisons or no country with no prisons. So that's a reform right there. That's not an end to slavery. Did you have a country with no crime too? Is that the plan? Because you're going to have criminals. You're going to have people who have done really bad things and something needs to be done with them. How are we going to work that out? And I'm sure you got some ideas along the way, but at no point in that you see this is a crime against humanity at no point in it that is right, this even right. perceived as something that as a system of slavery needs to be abolished that's not mentioned except just passingly in the very beginning so and that's only to associate the abolition you're doing with the slavery abolitionist movement when it's really not the same thing at all what you're hearing right here tonight on black talk radio network new abolitionist radio are the successors 
of the abolitionist movement because we are doing the same thing they did. We're taking our cues from Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and John Brown. We're not taking our cues from some lawyer from 10 years ago, okay? And let me read something else from out of this article where it says, with evangelical zeal, abolitionists insist that we must choose between abolition and reform, while discounting reform as a viable option. While one could find evangelical zeal among any political movement, it is inaccurate to cast abolitionists as opposed to incremental change. Rather, abolitionists have insisted on reforms that reduce rather than strengthen the scale and scope of policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. What I'm hearing right now is what they call gradualists back in the 1800s. People that thought, you know what? We don't need to let these Negroes go free right now. We could work it out over 30 years, 40 years. We could gradually emancipate them. And there were a lot of gradualists. And that's exactly what you sound like right now. Whereas we, on the other hand, see this as a crime against humanity. It's slavery. Those people deserve their freedom right now. Like if I could open up all the doors for all the people right now in jails and prisons for nonviolent or drug-related or debt-related crimes, I would do so because they deserve to be free right now. Not their children need to avoid it, so we're going to put these things into play for another 30 years to affect it mm-hmm. right now. So we're immediateists. Right. What, what what they're talking about is that what Barack Obama did, which a lot of people give him credit for, but uh, the crack cocaine disparity. See, again, that's a symptom. So instead of uh, it being 100 to 1 and racially meted out, because of how drugs are moved in certain communities, you reduce it to 18 to 1. It, so that's that gradualism. When nobody should e- should even be in prison for that. If they got a drug habit, then they should be in a drug rehab if they so choose to be in one. If they got an economic problem where they ain't got no job, so they forced to engage in the only markets open to them, then you give them a job. You give you give them a, a a real constructive job or or whatnot, but no, you're right, Max. Gradualism and again, no accountability because in order to implement reforms, then you have to then you're conceding that you're negotiating uh, with the slavers, okay, and that you don't plan to hold anyone accountable. I just point people to what you wrote years ago. The day slavery ended, what it would look like, what it should look like. Okay? that That's as simple as I could put, put it. I don't know if you got it handy, but if you could post that link where you talk about having like Nuremberg-style trials, that's what I want to see. But I will uh, take any man, woman, or child uh, that I can get free of uh, with gradualism, but they're talking in like 10, 20, 30 years. You know what I'm saying? No, I, I'm talking about slavery abolitionists, and that should have happened yesterday. Otis? I I say if you eliminate the ability for prosecutors to duly convict someone, they'll have to go back to doing what prosecutors should do. Go with the evidence you take away the loopholes to legally enslave a human being. You make it so that they can't saddle someone and coerce them into pleading to something that they're not guilty of. In other words, 
make the system a system of justice. If all they have to do is go to a dog and pony show, force someone through a system, and now it's okay to enslave them, it's an unjust system. You take away that lure, and then you're going to eliminate the, the, what, million to two million that go through this system, not including what they won't keep telling us when we talk about slavery. I'm starting to find out they're not even including jails in this system. When mm-hmm. they talk about prisons, they're talking about state and federal level. They're not telling us that most of these cities and states are, have regional jails. And those people that are sitting in there waiting to be processed aren't even counted. So there's millions of They haven't more been convicted of anything. In the penal system. Right. Never been convicted. Just like the people we, we went over last week that were sent to the chicken farm. They were sent right. there and never, ever convicted. So the system has to be stopped. Slavery has to be abolished as a legal tool to enslave human beings. It has to stop. And then you can go and reform your justice system. I'm with you on that. There's a whole lot. When you find out people like uh, Harry Connick's father, who did it for 20 years, I happen to know from living in Dallas, Henry Way's justice system is named after a man that did it for three decades that fabricated uh, false evidence. Yeah, he was a prosecutor. The, the, the prosecutor, that's right. Henry Wade was one of the one of the best known in Dallas. The justice system is named. The building is named after him in Dallas. He had three decades of cases that he fabricated evidence, and he never once was prosecuted for any of that. Those mm-hmm. are that's what you can go back and reform. But slavery has to be abolished. Yeah, those in, people got to be prosecuted too, though. That's what I'm saying. They got to be prosecuted as well, and the victims got to be paid reparations. Exactly. So, so, but I'm glad, Otis, because that was on my mind, and it escaped my mind that the perfect example to what they're talking about. So, you abolish prisons again. We're talking about a building. We're talking about uh, how that building is designed. Now, warehouse as many human beings as possible. So. If you do some non-reformist reform, that looks like that story we talked about last week, Otis, the so-called Christian Rehab Center. And so if you could briefly, just briefly, Otis, give us a recap on what abolishing prisons would look like, because that's what it would look like. Right. Oh, yes. A nonprofit set up under religious conditions, fabricated to make it appear like you're going to send someone to rehab and instead you put them in a commercial processing plant eliminating jobs chicken processing plant very dangerous free labor no work protection no workman's comp no compensation for your labor and you do nothing but supply a billion dollar corporation so efficiently until they come together in a group and fabricate even more rehab centers for you and there's nothing to rehabilitate the the person that's involved there's not even any conviction and the only people winning are the judges, the people who lock them up and you also have cheap labor guarding them and then one of the guys he wasn't even on drugs Right, exactly. He was. He just had uh, uh, child support payments were behind. 
He fell delinquent on his child support payments and they put him in jail for a year. They said he needed a good work ethic. Ended up with a mangled hand. His workman's comp was stolen from him. And this that's happening all over this country. If you take away the legal right to enslave a person, all of those other things can be reformed. What? You want more? <laughs> oh, man. But we gave that a bump, that story, because a lot of different uh, other articles have been coming out on that as well, and people starting to wake up to these chicken farms and what's going on. I, for one, am no longer eating chicken from anywhere other than my own home. And I've said it on New Abolitionist Radio several times over the years when my younger brother, my baby brother, was 10 years a slave in North Carolina. He worked on a, on a turkey processing plant. That's what they do. And let me go back to the reform thing, you know, the gradualism. I just want to put some things in perspective, numerically speaking. We have about 15 million people a year that go through our prison systems, whether it be through the probation and parole, the prisons, the jails, the youth detention uh, facilities, the uh, immigrant detention centers. It's about 15 million bodies a year going in and out. In 30 years, that would be 450 million bodies that have went in and out of that system if nothing changes. If it don't grow at all, that's 450 million bodies. That's more than there are people in the freaking United States of America. There's only 320 million people in the country. But we'll have, in 30 years, seen some of them repeated with a total of 450 million bodies going through the system. In 30 years, at the rate that police are killing people now at 1,400 people per year, we'll be talking about 42,000 dead bodies in 30 years. 42,000. Not 4,000. 42,000 in 10 years. That can't wait. You're going to come and look at me in 30 years from now and say, see, Max, it was all worth it, wasn't it? Could you, could you do that? I don't think you could do that that you could tell me that those 42,000 dead people were worth the wait. Okay. So yeah, you know, abolition applies to uh, abolishing certain segments, like you could abolish the bail system. They're trying to abolish the police force. Uh, you know, you want to abolish a number of different things. Uh, the word is very liberally used in different aspects, but this we're talking slavery abolition, which ties all that together. If we can end slavery, all those other things are going to end by default, which is just part of the process. Right, and right. I'd like I'd like to throw in one other thing. I see strategic and, melanin. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, this I was about room. to read that. Go ahead and read that. What she wrote. Do it to, to do away with the illegal bail system. She's talking about that's another thing that can. She says reform, I'd say it should be abolished. Bail system. When you, it is against the Constitution for you to impose a financial burden on someone when their income level won't allow for it. This system that we're using now, no, none of the judges are actually going by your constitutional rights. They impose bail at will knowing that they have a system set up so that a, a individual or a company can set up a bail bond, take your money, when nine times out of ten, the person being processed has never left his community. It's not like they have going to have any flight for, for some of the, the uh, 
things that they're getting bailed for, but that's another way to monetize and strap debt on you and make you what? A legal slave. And you just for the you go to jail. For the listeners' purpose, let me read the Eighth Amendment for them. The Eighth Amendment of the Constitution states excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. The amendment is meant to safeguard Americans against excessive punishments. Right. And also, I think you've mentioned, I, I remember you mentioning, Max, isn't the United States one of what, two or three countries that have the bail system? Just two in the whole world, us and the Philippines. And you already know what the Philippines are going through. Oh, man. So, yeah, they, they, dragging, yeah. they dragging suspected, not convicted of anything, but suspected drug dealers and users into the street and shooting shooting them in the head. And Donald Trump called uh, Rodrigo, I call him uh, Mad Dog Duarte, uh, to tell him what a great job he's doing in the war on drugs. And so uh, we do got a caller, 719 wants to chime in. Um, yeah, um, we got about just for everybody uh, 10 minutes before our station identification break. But 719, thank you for chiming in to New Abolitionist Radio. If you want to share your name, go ahead and give us your question or comment. Hey, Scotty, uh, Max, peace, uh, peace. Otis, thank you for letting me talk. Uh, peace and welcome um, to New Abolitionist Radio. Who are we speaking to? We're speaking to Ramon. Ramon. Oh, Brother Ramon. What's happening, Brother Ramon? <laughs> What's going on, y'all? I love the conversation. Um, y'all made me realize something, I, and I haven't heard nobody talking about this lately. Have y'all realized that the, the Miranda right has disappeared? Yes. Nobody has been Miranda Mirandaized since we've been sent. No, even when we see them arrest on TV, we we don't hear you have the right to remain silent. Well, I don't know. Everything that. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, everything you were saying, Otis, just made it, it. That's what made me think about it. The Miranda right is is, is supposed to be in, in place for those things such as the Fifth Amendment, and I mean, I mean, take pleading the fifth and things like that. So, what I realize is we've let that go past us, and we haven't even spoke on that. That's that's probably right there sets the tone for a lot of what y'all are talking about, or at least y'all made me think about it that way. I, I can do the research on it, but I can tell you from memory, there's a case out of San Antonio with a Spanish guy that happened about four years ago. The right when when he was being interrogated or questioned by the police, the Supreme Court actually did a ruling on it that says now being silent is not necessarily a right. It can be used to implicate you as a guilty party. I'll have to look that up and share it in in the uh, new abolitionist thing. So basically, what because the court did that, most of the police departments are no longer give it telling you because they say it's not mandatory upon contact with the police to read it. They only have to read it if they intend to hold you or or lock you up. So that's been used as a legal shield so that prosecutors don't have to worry about getting the case thrown out anymore. You're right. It's no longer even being pushed by the police departments as mandatory. In other words, the police are no, under no obligation to tell you what your constitutional rights are. It's a case from about four years ago. I'll dig it up before I go to sleep tonight and try to share it in the chat room. I mean, in the on the page. 
sure I got it bookmarked somewhere. So the, the system is about filling beds. That's what it's about. And you got to criminalize people to do that. And in order to criminalize them, there's a process that you can put them through so it stays perpetual. And that is unemployment, poverty, crime, incarceration. Unemployment, poverty, crime, incarceration over and over and over again in a circle, generation after generation. Just keep taking the jobs away, putting them somewhere else. If you've lived hey, through Max. that, you know what I'm talking about. Yes? Max. Yes, sir. Being that you brought, you guys mentioned, uh, I heard one of y'all mention uh, child support earlier. Myself being someone who has had, still dealing with arrears on child support, I, I would have to agree with y'all that the, the number one system when it comes to, you know, children being involved, child support, their whole gamut, as far as I'm concerned, is about if you don't have the money, you got to just go to jail. So we don't even care if you got the money at this point. And it's almost like they just set you, they want to set you up into that position. Yeah, and, that makes no you know, sense at all. Makes no sense. They suspend your license. Uh, you, they can prevent you from getting loans. You know, these are things I don't know if people, you know, maybe listeners online do or do not know, but these things can go, just child support alone can destroy a, a non-custodial parent's life right. in the sense of if you're looking for conventional help. You know, Walter Scott is a perfect from. example. Exactly. Scott, he died perfect over child support. Yep, perfect yeah, example. He, Walter was Scott. Three times he lost three different jobs to being arrested over arrears and child support. So how in the hell is putting him in jail and take making him lose the job helping to get this bill paid? It's not. Because that's not the purpose Scott, of it at all. But Max, there's even situations where people have been fired because of it. See, those are the stories that don't get talked talk about either. See, when they, when they started talking about all this, you know, credit, what's your references and all this stuff, people were, people have been losing their jobs over just having child support arrears or just having child support. We don't talk about that. The other thing you mentioned, too, was the suspension of license. That's another trick that they use that keeps you in perpetual poverty. How the hell are you going to get a job? You can't. You don't have a license. Well, my son just got out of prison after 15 years. The first thing that they did was send him right back to court in order to suspend his license with some uh, uh, motor vehicle violations from when he was 17 years old. They put a $2,000 fine on him. So now he's just got out of prison trying to find a job, but you're not going to let him have the right to drive a car until you extort another $2,000 out of him. And that prosecutor had discretion to dismiss those charges because they've done it in Charlotte, they done it for me. Where well, I had some old fines in um, from like 1980 something, and it's like t- year 2000 and something. And so I go oh, to pay. Back. Yeah, and, and he oh, like sorry. just. I, I didn't mean to yeah. cut you. I'm sorry, bro. Go ahead. But yeah, they'll just. They, they, I'm just saying the prosecutor can doesn't have to prosecute that. They can write that off. Well, you know, well, New York, York City. Let, let Ramon finish this thing real quick, if you don't mind. I just want to hear the rest yes, of his comments. Go right ahead. Well, I just want to add to it. I want to be a part of it. Um, here's what I'm saying, too. Something else they don't tell you. When you go to prison, they're supposed to automatically stop or reduce child support down to your... Uh, you see, if anybody's been on child support, they know that they the non-custodial parent and the custodial parent has yes. to put in a, a wage uh, report. Well, when you go to prison, you're effectively zero income. Child support is supposed to retroactively kick in and say he's not employable, 
and he, he's not gainfully employable. So we have to stop collections. They don't stop collections, and a lot of men don't. I didn't know this either. Sitting up in jail, they keep you on full. So let's say you went to jail with $100 a month to pay on child support. If you go to prison, they don't say, well, let's stop it or reduce it based on his income, even though that's what the child support guidelines say you have to do. But unbeknownst to us, we go to jail and that, that bill is racking up. But for anybody that's on the line listening today that may be facing, I hope you're not, but if you're facing some, some time coming up, these are things you should get in order before you go out. Go to the child support uh, agency, have them recalculate your income based on what your future is, and if you're going to jail, obviously it's going to be zero. Thank you. Yeah, you, you touched on one other thing I'll say quickly, too. That's part of what Republicans have been ratcheting back, and Democrats are partly guilty on it, too, is not funding adequate representation with public defenders. That they don't tell you what your rights are because their cases are overloaded and they do nothing but process you through a system. Everything done in a courtroom now is about how quickly they can do it, calculating money when they process it. If they put 100 people on the docket, they're calculating how many uh, fees they're going to collect that day so they can support whatever culprits that goes into. Some, some jurisdiction, it goes to the police. Some, it goes to actually supporting the court system and paying for the cleaning contract or for the travel of the judges. So there's no advantage for them to tell you you can have that reduced because they want you paying those fees. Hey, let me uh, also uh, add some things. We got to get ready to go to a station identification break, but address some right. things in the chat room to clear up something I said. Uh, in that case that Max described you, or those charges from 1980-something when, when his son was 17, and here he just got out of prison in 2017, and you going to uh, still press those charges? I was meant to say the prosecutor had the discretion to dismiss the charges, is what I meant. And when you really think about it, like, for example, I had gotten a ticket, speeding ticket, uh, in my old Camaro, 92 Camaro, boy, that thing would fly. Uh, in, in Charlotte, didn't go to court. Here it is a decade or more later, and uh, my license had been suspended, so I'm going to get them back. And so in my process of getting them back, I had to get that cleared up. And he was like, that's so old, I will just go ahead and dismiss that. You're doing this to get your license legit, right? And so prosecutors had that discretion. This is, again, why all people say, all politics is local. You know, whoever the whatever the policies is that that DA directs those of his office to implement, they'll implement. It's like that in Gastonia. They don't try to, like, throw you up in jail or lock you up. They might start now since Judge uh, Jingles died, which was the uh, uh, chief, chief judge over that courthouse who was a black man. Uh, so they might start throwing them in, in jail. But prosecutors have discretion. They could just dismiss that. And you think about it, hey, that cop who wrote me that ticket, he might have moved on to another state and joined another police department. Or he might have got fired because he body slammed uh, some old lady in Food Lions parking lot and it was caught on video. So if he ain't there to, to uh, be, because I have a right to confront my accuser. And if you want to say that I was doing... Uh, 
80 in a 55 zone, then where's my accuser? That's that cop. And so it makes sense, though, you know, uh, to just dismiss it from a standpoint. But so what happened to Max's son, that will, I would call that a malicious prosecution. They thought they were being generous by setting up a payment plan. Yeah, yeah, that's slavery. All right, so yeah. let's go ahead, Max, take us to break. No doubt. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. And we will be right back after these messages. program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, I just want to add one last thing to the conversation that we were having in regards to child support and the, uh, and the like. Walter Scott, and I mentioned him, uh, he is an example of what's going on here in South Carolina. In South Carolina, one in eight of everybody that's in the jail is in there for child support payments. And in his case, uh, the article that I'm quoting from right now is available on New Abolitionist Radio, but they say, Scott, who was killed on Saturday by police officer Michael Slager in North Charleston, South Carolina, has also long struggled to pay child support. In 2008, he went to jail for full six months after falling behind by $6,800 in child support payments. According to the Associated Press, Scott spent one night in jail in both 2011 and in 2012, again, because he owed thousands in child support. At the time of Scott's death, there was a warrant out for his arrest due to failure to make child support payments. Scott also had a history of conviction and arrest for other offenses. I don't know why they're mentioning this, but according to the Post-Courier and Charleston paper. So, you know, right there, over and over again, he was being hit with this, and it wasn't helping to pay any bill or take care of any children. It was just oppression, pure and simple. And the other and thing I forgot to mention, Max, is the profit motive. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, they handled the cars here in North Carolina. Cause See, I've been on the other side. Well, I've been on both sides. I have a child. Uh, well, first, I have two children, two daughters from my marriage to my ex-wife. All right. So I had I was the custodial parent. And she, and yeah, at the time I looked at it, she should have been under a child support order, but not getting into my personal history and why she should have been made to pay or had that hanging over her head, but at least I did 
dismiss some of the debt when she was facing going to jail because how can I come on New Abolitionist Radio and I just then sent this woman into slavery, you know, over a thousand dollars. You know what I'm saying? And and and, and 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 so I've been on the other side of it. But it would be like years that she wouldn't pay, but then when she filed her taxes, it's it's automatically taken. And they give you a debit card for that. They don't send you no check or nothing. It's all electronic. And guess who handles that? J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, I think they were named as one of the six banks that are mm-hmm. essential to the running of prisons and what have you. That We talked about an uh, article comes to mind, the six major banks. So J.P. Morgan is also in on that child support because they get fees. And so and that's like, how they roll. Yeah, yeah. So like they was trying. I told them one time they like and see she wouldn't go to prison because I would never show up in court to press it or or whatever. Or if she was looking at jail, I go in there and say yeah she could just pay a little bit on it. And no, I don't agree with sending her to, to jail because she'll lose her job. And, and these children are being taken care of. So I ain't down with sending her to jail, you know? And so, and, and then how would my children look at me? I'm sending a mother. So I'm thinking about all this kind of stuff, you know what I'm saying? But then they, um, she would get behind, man. And so it would be like 2000 behind or something like that. And then, you know, I would request a check whenever they gathered up those funds and they would be like, no, they forced me into taking that debit card. Just send me a check so I can deposit in my bank account. No, they forced me to take that debit card because they want people to use that card over and over at the major ATMs, use it at the retailer, and J.P. Morgan racking up money on them fees. So what I did was they didn't send me a check is I would take that card and make the maximum withdrawal at that ATM until I had that money. You're not going to make no fees off of me. So, I, I mean, it's, it's just, man, it's just so entwined in. These are symptoms, again, of that cancerous slavery. Yes, sir. There's two stories, Scotty. I, I don't want to get it to miss tonight, and I'm... Uh, I, you're probably going to talk about the one because you've already talked about it in detail. I've been listening to other commentators about it, including yourself, and that's regarding the new FBI uh, terrorist threat called Black Identity Extremists. And I remember at one point somebody mentioned that it was uh, an unsourced uh, material, uh, the source of this, and that it may not actually be going on, and then someone offered other evidence to show that the FBI is using this Black Identity Extremist uh, title now, which is a uh, continuation of COINTELPRO. So I would love to hear you uh, tell us about that and what you think on that. And uh, the other one I want to talk about is the Second Amendment story that's coming about, came out from Raw Story, which we've talked about before, where it says that the Second Amendment was ratified to preserve slavery. Because uh, we hear a lot of people talking about the Second Amendment right now. You know what I mean? Like, they talk about the flag, or they talk about the Confederate flag, and they don't understand the history of those things and what they really represent. So the Second Amendment is the other one, and it's a great article that came out from Raw Story on it. It's, it's kind of long. I don't think I'll go through the whole thing, but I, I want to go through some of it. So uh, would you like to cover the identity um, thing first, or you want me to go into the Raw Story? I'll just summarize the B-I-E, which is a L-I-E, lie. It's just COINTELPRO. Talking about, we were talking about political prisoners earlier, so we've been breaking it down every day 
on BTR News. When I say we, I mean myself as the host and our callers. Um, the abolitionists called in, tag, um, of course, and we were talking about political prisoners. And so this is n- no different than the, in- the internal memos that the FBI was sending out in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, up until that racist slaver J. Edgar Hoover croaked. And and so that's COINTELPRO. Y'all can Google that. You'll find a lot of information. How that came to light was some activists had uh, broke into an FBI field office and stole documents, and these were among the documents. Was this illegal, even by their standards and their federal codes and laws, was an illegal program, and it included spying, framing people for crimes they didn't commit, um, you know, and leading to all of these political prisoners that are many are still in prison today and dying in, in prison as a result of this illegal program. You can also refer yourself on YouTube, look for like the Frank Church Committee, uh, where they talk about how the FBI was also, uh, uh, they were putting out propaganda, the CIA as well, and using news organizations like NBC in 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 um the different major news organizations that's still around, like the Associated Press, UPI, and others. That was actually part of my presentation at, at the workshop on Revolution Radio at Chronic 2017 that uh, me and Max gave. And and so that's all it is, people. It's just a repeat of those tactics. This was not meant for public consumption. It was sent out to all police officers, slave catchers, sent out to all the slave catcher uh, departments. And so uh, all the uh, um, vague language, the methodology that they're using, um, you know, uh, this is just a repeat of that. And it shouldn't come to any surprise to anyone who knows the history of Jeff Sessions. You know, he his racism and connections to white supremacy was pointed out in his Senate confirmation hearings. And, and I had uh, Tom Tillis, the senator, one of the senators from North Carolina, going to tell me when I pointed out the the uh, the differences between his rhetoric and what Jeff Sessions stood for before you vote to conf- to confirm this dude who is all about putting people into slavery and bringing up the drug war while you trying to, you know, talking about we need some reform and you're going to tell me that that's your friend. That a one white male to another white male. You down with Jeff's Beauregard Sessions. That's what Tom Tillis said in a letter to me that I still that I still have. And and so this is it should come to no surprise that the the chief law enforcement officer, the FBI, they have a director, but they answer to Jeff Sessions. That's part of the Department of Justice. So it's just a repeat of that. And so, you know, bunch of stereotypes. Um, just sharing some news reports from who? From white people uh, papers, like H. Rep. Brown called them white white power press, and and their uh, descriptions of people who have taken individuals who have taken uh, alleged to have taken, because number of them made it to trial, um, but who have alleged to committed acts of violence against police officers. Although these individuals of skin color, uh, they will be in the minority of those who have taken the lives of police officers. That's number one uh, killer of cops is white males. And so this ideal to then, you know, put this report out there and try to say that if you identify as a Moor, 
if you engage in any kind of rhetoric that you don't recognize the the authority of the United States, then you are an extremist. You know, you ain't got to be sitting around plotting to overthrow the U.S. government, but you sitting up with other people talking about, I don't recognize your authority. And that's enough to label you an extremist, which the next step is a terrorist. And we know they've already implemented policies. Again, nothing new at all. Uh, um, you know, where they can lock you up and give you indefinite detention, you know, without ever charging you with a crime. I mean, if they're killing you without, you know, on, on what they call probable cause, well, you know, that's not a that's not a a a uh, uh, evidence of guilt. So that's what that's about. I don't want to spend a lot more any more time on it uh, from my perspective. Other people can get their perspective, but I'll be talking about it again on BTR News, and you can check out the past uh, uh, two podcasts because that's I'm stretching those twelve pages out over five days, so Monday through Friday, twelve o'clock noon Eastern. Congratulations on the launch of the new magazine too. I saw your first edition that came out. That was pretty slick, man. Yeah. The the one thing I'll add to it, Scotty, is that was said toward the end of your program earlier today. I went back and looked over some stuff from Snowden about data and surveillance to tie this into what you're talking about with this this BIE. This is nothing but a public declaration to law enforcement. To, to basically let them know where the Justice Department stands on any confrontation or contact they have with these, quote, extremists. A perfect example is the FBI also did an internal report several years ago when Obama was still in office about how white supremacists had infiltrated law enforcement. They didn't put it out in a public display and give us all the details. All they did was leak it to people like the Washington Post. It hit for on the news for maybe a week or so and just let it go. This time, they put out the full document on black people that are supposed to be extremists. That's letting law enforcement at all levels know if you need a way to make these people uh criminals, you have it. They are black extremists. And and these people that come on Facebook talking about what they're going to do, all of your data is being warehoused. Law enforcement no longer is about catching you in the act. It's about corralling you and then going back, getting all of your data and information and doing the same thing they did in New York City when they were locking up these gangs for association. They do it all now with your electronics, where your phone is, who's in the neighborhood with, with your phone. All of that is catalog is in metadata. Uh, I put up on my page, I'm going to have to put it back on, on New Abolitionist so you can see it. French, I mean, uh, Snowden, when he came out, he explained why he did what he did because he found out that's what law enforcement was doing. They would lock people up, then go back and go through your data, then come to court and not tell where they got the information from. So in other words, what they're doing is going over stored information. That's why you can't, it's, it's a waste of your time 
to try to tell law enforcement a lie about where you are, what you do, if you use a computer or a digital phone. You can forget it. They can tell where you were, when you were there, and I, you can even go on your cell phone. I own an iPhone. I had to show it to my sisters and, and my nephews. You can pull up data and show exactly where you've been over the last three or four years, right on your iPhone. Show you all your locations across the continental U.S. So people need to understand this is just an open way of telling every law enforcement department from the small ones right on up to the state level, if you contact so-and-so and they're a problem, you can get the data and, and find a way to lock them up as an extremist. It's, it's trying well, to control the movement that is building, the resistance that's building. This is a good transition to the other article, but first I'll make some comments. And I say it's a good transition because uh, the quote from the article on the Second Amendment basically says slavery can only exist in the context of a police state. And it's also not coincidental that George Wackenhut, the founder of Wackenhut Corrections, uh, who also uh, launched his initial IPO along with the Clinton crime bill, and it was the founder of what we now know today as the GEO Group, a global uh, multinational for-profit prison company, was also an FBI agent. And look at how... Uh, let me read to you a little bit of George Wackenhut's history so you understand the connection I'm making here. In 1951, Wackenhut joined the FBI as a special agent in Indianapolis and Atlanta, handling counterfeit money and bad check cases and tracking down army deserters. He resigned in 1954 to launch Special Agents Investigations in Coral Gables, Florida, with three other former agents, William Statton, a. Kenneth Atchell and Miami lawyer and FBI agent Ed Du Bois Jr. Following an infamous in-office fistfight with Du Bois in 1955, a professional split occurred and Du Bois went on to form his own company, Investigators Incorporated, focusing on private investigations. In 1958, Wackenhut bought out his remaining partners, renamed the company after himself, and expanded into the security guard field and went public in 1965. George Wackenhut was known as the hardline right-winger. He built up dossiers on Americans suspected of being communists or left-leaning subversives and sympathizers and sold the information to interested parties. Frank Donner claimed in his book, Age of Surveillance, that the Wackenhut Correction maintained and updated its files even after the McCarthy hysteria had ebbed, adding the names of anti-war pro protesters and civil rights demonstrators to its derogatory types list. By 1965, Wackenhut was boasting to potential investors that the company maintained files on 2.5 million suspected dissidents, one in 46 American adults then living. And that is now the GEO Group. That's the man who started it. See, from slave to criminal with one amendment, poof, the 13th Amendment. Now you got them as criminals. You, you're not calling them slaves anymore. And who's the criminals? Well, we've got real criminals, and then we're going to add these people who were not criminals prior, but now they're going to be criminals. And those are the same people who were slaves primarily prior to that. 
And now you can go out and hunt them and capture them and keep doing the same things you'd always been doing under the guise of law. By what standard of morality can the violence used by a slave to break his chains be considered the same as the violence of the slave master? Walter Rodney. Shout out to Sharon Smith for sharing that. All right, so the next story I wanted to do this segue is from the Raw story, and it's titled The Second Amendment Was Ratified to Preserve Slavery by Tom Hartman, and it's uh, July 2016. It says the real reason the Second Amendment was ratified and why it says state instead of country, the framers knew the difference, see the Tenth Amendment, was to preserve the slave patrol militias in the South Southern states, which was necessary to get Virginia's vote. Founders Patrick Henry, George Mason, and James Madison were totally clear on that, and we all should be too. In the beginning, there were the militias. In the South, they were also called the slave patrols, and they were regulated by the states. In Georgia, for example, a generation before the American Revolution, laws were passed in 1755 and 1757 that required all plantation owners or their male white employees to be members of the Georgia militia, and for those armed militia members to take monthly inspections of the quarters of all slaves in the state. The law defined which counties had which armed militias, militias and even required armed militia members to keep a keen eye out for slaves who may be planning uprisings. As Dr. Carl T. Bogus wrote for the University of California Law Review in 1998, the Georgia statutes require patrols under the direction of commissioned militia officers to examine every plantation each month and authorize them to search all Negro houses for offensive weapons and ammunition and to apprehend and give 20 lashes to any slave found outside plantation grounds. It's the answer to the question raised by the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained when he asked, why don't they just rise up and kill the whites? If the movie were real, it would have been a purely rhetorical question because every Southerner of the era knew the simple answer. Well, regulated militias kept the slaves in chains. Sally E. Hayden, in her book, Slave Patrols, Law and Violence in Virginia and the Carolinas, notes that although eligibility for the militia seemed all-encompassing, not every middle-aged white male Virginian or Carolinian became a slave patroller. There were exemptions, so men in critical professions like judges, legislators, and students could stay at their work. Generally, though, she right. documents how most Southern men between ages 18 and 45, including physicians and ministers, had to serve on slave patrols in the militia at one time or another in their lives. And slave rebellions were keeping the slave patrols busy. Well, that By man... Time, yes? I'm sorry, but that man... Uh, what's his name? Dang. Andrew, uh, President Andrew Trump's guy. Jackson. Andrew, yeah, Andrew Jackson. He ran away from the Carolinas to join the slave patrols. They didn't have to force him because he was 
He was second generation. No, he was actually first generation born on this continent. His parents was poor, came over as probably indentured servants or whatnot, working for somebody here in this area of North Carolina. And and escaped that poverty, he joined, he left when he got of age, went to Tennessee and, and volunteered for their slave patrols. And from there, joined the U.S. military and became known as a great Indian killer. And his portrait is 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 a favorite of President Donald Trump, and it hangs in the Oval Office right now. Yes, sir. Should I say something? All those states' rights people. I wanted to say something when you brought a, a Wacken Hut. Wacken Hut back in the eighties. I wanted to tell you. They actually are the same people. CCA when they when they first started, Corrections Corporation of America, back yes. in the eighties, they are the same investment group that actually started Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's a, that's that the investment group that that franchised Kentucky Fried Chicken actually started CCA back in about nineteen eighty four. As a matter of fact, not only did they start it when it once they got going and started trading on a stock New York Stock Exchange, they operated in 21 states from the District of Columbia on through Puerto Rico, and they said the only places that had larger prisons once they got started was Texas, California, New York, and Florida. Then what uh, Wackenhut at the time was out of Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Is where is where they they first started, and they started trading on the New York Stock Exchange in 1996, along with the Bill yep. Exactly. So that's why I keep saying to you, the group of investors and tentacles go so deep, it covers law enforcement, it covers the one percent, which are billionaires and and the hedge funds managers yeah, ain't and the banking. Ain't Let me just change. be clear on what you're saying. Uh, hold on for a second, Scotty. Let me be clear on what you're saying. You're saying that these prison industries, which are now global entities since the early 19, mid-1990s, all launched together with the Clinton crime bill in complete knowledge Man, and understanding with the Clintons themselves as to what they were about to put into play, which would last generations. That's a conspiracy. And, and and the bad part about it is they actually started as a subsidiary during Reagan in 1988 under Republicans. Clinton actually became the face of them when they started trading publicly when he took over the Republicans get tough on crime. He mm. was the one that helped them Clinton. turn into a public-private thing where we started with using government money to build the buildings and then right. leasing them back to the corporations. And right. they expanded to England, Wales, Scotland, yeah, Puerto and Rico, Hillary and South Clinton Africa. Was in the I looked of that up too. because you brought it up a couple of weeks ago. So I brought, it, I brought it up. I said, I'm going to stick it to the side and let you know. That's when they became international. Yeah, one of our listeners uh, actually had mentioned that to me earlier where they commented on a, a story and 
Hillary Clinton name was brought up and he said that she was calling uh black boys uh gangs of super predators and, Thugs, and, and yeah. yeah and this dude tried to defend them and I you know uh I ain't gonna call his name out he know who he is from South Carolina um but he was trying to defend her and I know he is one of those Clinton super fans and whatnot and but um you know that was pointed out to them and Hillary Clinton was in the center of that now y'all just mentioned um, you know the launch of that that's a conspiracy right there to violate people's human rights because that's a violation of the UN charter on human rights it's just that nobody's prosecuting these people and we're recognizing them to be we're allowing these people to be legislatures and make laws and then we had the evidence that there's a conspiracy to put people mass numbers of people into slavery all for profit cause what is slavery all about producing profit one of the most eye-opening articles that i've ever read showing people places times and date by people who were actually there and knew firsthand but information Max. is available right now a new abolitionist radio is called uh, it's the clinton administration and it's from dunwalk.com it breaks it all down for you and she was engaged uh, in all that relationship that, to this she was engaged in as well as he he was and all that racialized language that was all being attributed to Rush Limbaugh. And I was listening to talk radio back back during that time. I started listening to talk radio in the 80s. And, and they were repeating the same talking points, talking about this super predators. That was based on a right-wing study. And this was all to sell that Clinton crime bill to get good Democrats behind it. Because Republicans was already behind it. You know, they need to change their name because they are certainly no longer an abolitionist party. So, you know, let's just call them the the GOP. I don't know. They need a new name. All right. But anyway, uh, um, Hillary Clinton also demonized single mothers, said they were lazy, weren't looking for work, and were just getting welfare checks. And they moved, this is all documented, and they moved one billion from social services to private prison contracting to those people they conspired with to launch these companies these are this is rico we could build a rico case on the clintons well, yes we when, could when you bring that up that's part of what the, the other part i was going to put in there actually from 1936 there was a, a supreme court case where states couldn't do it so that's part of the reason you hear southern governors push states rights because according to that U.S. Uh, federal case, the only way you can give a private prison the right to operate is through a state government as long as the contract doesn't violate the Constitution. So that, again, was a part of Bill Clinton when he was a governor of Arkansas, was one of the first private prisons Arkansas gave an overcrowded prison. Uh, one of one of his friends was actually uh, a contractor for the food and and I think the cleaning supplies supplies. And they came up with the right to authorize private prisons. That came through the state of Arkansas. Hey, uh, let's be mindful too that uh, we're down to the last half hour and I got at least one pretty long segment with uh, one of the stories we want to share in the, in the segments. And I want to finish up this Second Amendment thing. Uh, to answer your question, what's that name for the Republican Party? Noam Chan- Chomsky said 
that the Republican Party is the most dangerous organization in human history. So there's the name for them. Most dangerous organization in human history. Uh, hopefully that works for you. But all, you know, all of this is like for us, it's a bow tie. Every week we do this. We put all the information together for you, and then we show you how we can wrap it up in one bow tie under one umbrella. Slavery. It's all part of slavery. And all the, a lot of these people knowingly were involved in doing this, including the false narratives presented by, as Otis mentioned, uh, Hillary Clinton <clears throat> with the, uh, you know, the super predators calling our children super predators, and also with Donald Trump calling for the deaths of the Central Park Five and demonizing a group of people in order to turn them into criminals for their slave trade, because that's what they were doing. They were falsely incarcerating people just as surely as they falsely incarcerated the Central Park Five and had everybody clapping their hands that they had done so. Like Scotty always mentions about Malcolm X's quote, uh, that you have to be really careful. Uh, Scotty, would you like to repeat the quote Malcolm says about the media who can, uh, you know, make you if you believe in the, the yeah. innocent and the guilty and the guilty of the innocent? Yeah, there's a number of quotes. Um, if you notice from our profile picture for tonight's broadcast, uh, Max was uh, putting a slide up on the projector of Malcolm X saying, if you're not careful, the the newspapers will uh, have, have you hating. I had to pull it up, man, but the quote that I have memorized upon which Black Talk Media Project was founded is the media is the most powerful entity on the face of the planet because it controls the minds of the masses. It can make the innocent look guilty and the guilty look innocent, and that's power. Yes, and the other one, Scotty, that I was looking for is, is if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. Thank you, and that's Max. perfectly exemplified by the Central Park Five, and at the same time, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and their rhetoric. All right, so let me finish up the last of this other part uh, story for the raw story about the Second Amendment. Hey, do you want to Where take our last off? station identification break or skip it? Uh, well, we're going to we've got a short on time. I think we're going to be cutting it close today. It's up to you. You're the lead producer, brother. Okay. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. That was it, Max. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. In continuation of this article, by the time the Constitution was ratified, hundreds of substantial slave uprisings had occurred across the South. Blacks outnumbered whites in large areas, and the state militias were used to pre both prevent, used to pro prevent and to put down slave uprisings. As Dr. Bogus points out, slavery can only exist in the context of a police state, and the enforcement of that police state was the explicit job of the militias. Let me repeat that. Slavery can only exist in the context of a police state. Are we in a police state right now? That would be your answer. If the anti-slavery folks in the North had figured out a way to disband or even move out of the states, those Southern militias, the police state of the South, would collapse. And similarly, if the North were to invite into military service the slaves of the South, then they could be emancipated, which would collapse the institution of slavery and the Southern economic and social systems altogether, much like what we're doing right now. 
These two possibilities worried Southerners like James Monroe, George Mason, who owned 300 slaves, and the Southern Christian evangelical Patrick Henry, who opposed slavery on principle, but also opposed freeing slaves. Their main concern was that Article 1, Section 8 of the newly proposed Constitution, which gave federal government the power to raise and supervise a militia, could also allow the federal militia to subsume their state militias and change them from slavery-enforcing institutions into something that could even one day free the slaves. This was not an imagined threat. Famously, 12 years earlier, during the lead-up to the Revolutionary War, Lord Dunsmore offered freedom to slaves who could escape and join his forces. Liberty to slaves was stitched onto their jacket pocket flaps. During the war, British General Henry Clinton extended that, the practice in 1779, and numerous slaves, freed slaves served in General Washington's army. Thus, Southern legislators and plantation owners lived not just in fear of their own slaves rebelling, but also in fear that their slaves would be emancipated through military service. And the ratifying convention in Virginia in 1788, Henry laid it out. Let me here call your attention to that part, Article 1, Section 8 of the proposed Constitution, which gives the Congress power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. By this, sir, you see that their control over our last and best defense is unlimited. If they neglect or refuse to discipline or arm our militia, they will be useless. The states can do neither, this power being exclusively given to Congress. The power of appointing officers over men not disciplined or armed is ridiculous, so that this pretending little remains of power left to the states may, at the pleasure of Congress, be rendered nugatory. So that's where I'm going to end it right there. You can read the rest on New Abolitionist Radio, but as you can clearly see, the Second Amendment was put into place to prevent slave uprisings. Right. And so putting it into modern context, what does that mean? That means that it's too late for gun control. (laughs) That's what it means. It's too late for gun control because, hey, there are hundreds of millions of guns out there with probably billions and billions of ammunition. out, And it's too late to try to this. Hey, so it's too late for gun control. Well, you'll see gun control in urban areas and black neighborhoods where they have gun buybacks all the time, but you won't see that out in uh, the middle of Kansas. No gun buybacks over there. And that's a symptom of slavery as well as stripping a black person of their rights. Like we mentioned, let's take it back to Virginia, which was mentioned earlier, in the slave codes that they passed, uh, what was that? 16, uh, it escapes me right now, but one of the first laws passed in the colonies to regulate the movement of the victims of slavery but also stripped free black colonists of their rights to bear arms that was in that Virginia colony slave code of of, I want to say 1680 1665 somewhere along there so again it has always been about disarming uh, black people but in case there's any black people out there that want to be anti-gun and think that the answer or solution to violence white terrorism is to be uh, uh, behind the democratic 
uh, political uh, proposition of gun control. It's too late. It's too late for that. And guns, read the books about how guns really won the civil rights movement or, or what have you. Read Negroes with Gun, Robert F. Williams. And, and I can tell you some stories about why my family is still here in North Carolina um, and not run off or murdered by a bunch of white terrorists. I, I can give, give you a secondhand story straight from my uncles who participated in repelling that white terrorism land theft with rifles. So that I just want to leave it at that on that topic. Uh, Otis? Oh, no, you, that, you covered it. You covered it. Just uh, FYI, right now, there has been here in South Carolina at McCormick Correctional Institution three uprisings of prisoners in their facilities, their high-security facilities, uh, and they're calling it rebellions against the system itself. The rebellions are going to keep happening because it's slavery. South Carolina's got some of the worst prisons in the country, and I have all the reports to prove it. And I want to give you this report right quick, but back back then, they had firearms. They were the only ones allowed to have firearms and what have you. The slave patrols I'm speaking of today, we call them police officers or cops. Uh, I tend to call them slave catchers because, you know, uh, we've been saying it for a long time, and, and that's who they're descended from. And, and they had badges too back then, okay? And and so, but they're only uh, estimated about one million. I'd give them maybe three million if you count reserve officers like Shaquille O'Neal and what have you. But that's three million against how many people with guns? How many millions and millions? How many hundreds of millions or more with guns? So I just simply want to say is we, the people, are tolerating slavery. Yes, sir. Uh, Scotty, we're down in less than 20 minutes. Should we start on our segments now? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, the first one I want to do is our rebellion, uh, you know, for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion, where we remember certain rebellions. And then the second one I want to do after that will be... Um, the abolitionist in profile which is titled oh i'm just taking three pigs to market ohio's underground railroad so somebody can get that prepared i'll start with the first um the creole case and i want to give a shout out to uh michael williams who provided us with this story today as uh, i requested some of my uh followers on facebook to uh, share some of their knowledge and this is what he presented to us which is an incredible story the creole case was the result of an african an American slave revolt in November of 1841 on board the Creole ship involved in the United States coastwise slave trade. As 128 slaves gained freedom after the rebels ordered the ship sail to Nassau, it had been termed the most successful slave revolt in U.S. history. Two persons died as a result of the revolt, a black slave and a white slave trader. The United Kingdom had abolished the slave trade for British vessels in 1807 and slavery in its colonies effective 1834. Its officials in the Bahamas ruled that most of the slaves on the Creole were freed after arrival there, if they chose to stay. Officials detained the 19 men who rebelled on ship until the Admiralty Court of Nassau held a special session in April 1842 to consider charges of piracy against them. The court ruled that the men had been illegally held in slavery and had the right to use force to gain freedom. They were not seeking private gain. The 17 survivors 
two had died in the interim were released to freedom. Wow. Shout out to my people in South Carolina rebelling right now. Let me repeat that for you. The court ruled that the men had been illegally held in slavery and had the right to use force to gain freedom. They were not seeking private gain. When the Creole reached New Orleans in December 1841 with three women and two child slaves aboard, the Southerners were outraged about the loss of property. Relations between the United States and Britain were strained for a time. The incident occurred during negotiations for the webster Ashburton Treaty of 1842, but was not directly addressed. The parties settled on seven crimes qualifying for extradition in the treaty. They did not include the slave revolts. Eventually, claims for losses of slaves from Creole and two other U.S. ships were covered, along with other claims dating to 1814. In a treaty of 1853 between the U.S. and Britain, for which an arbitration commission awarded settlements in 1855 against each nation. And uh, you can read the rest of the Creole case on New Abolitionist Radio. Once again, thanks to Michael Williams for sharing this with us. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio remember the Creole case. Salute. I would love to read the, uh, the, I guess, the conversations that were held in court where they came to the conclusion that the court ruled that the men had been illegally held in slavery and had the right to use force to gain freedom. I would really like to see that. Anybody home? Yeah, I, yeah I'm with you. I, I, I Netflix, if, that's if, another if Netflix were, movie. You know, put some money behind that. Come out with a Netflix original. All of these different stories, you know, that uh, need to be told, that can be told, that are quite entertaining. Not that slavery is entertaining, but people need to know this type of history. Y'all put some money behind a documentary called The 13th. Um, like Max noted, it fell short of offering a solution like abolition, but you still some somebody put some money behind that. And y'all looking for stories. There you go. I was wondering if the Equal Justice Project, your, your boy uh, Brian Stevenson, if if they're gonna, you know, they they have this elaborate system that they monumented doing to lynching. I'm wondering if they're gonna cover some of that. I I get upset every time I go and listen to one of his tapes, and he keeps talking about when slavery ended. So I'm I still got an attitude with him. Oh, All so right, we do we have somebody ready for the uh, abolitionist profile? Yeah, I got it. Great. Uh, this, Scotty, just uh, FYI, when this was given to me by Jess Ames, uh, he was pointing out the uh, brother that was involved in there who pretended to be a halfwit to be able to go entertain the uh, slaves and the Thomas slavery. L. Gray. Yes, yes, yes. Now I thought that was just so interesting and wonderful okay. to hear how people apply whatever they could do to help another get freedom. Now, is uh, that an excerpt from the article? Because I'm going to go through the article. Yes, I got it. Yes, it, all right, so it's just one little part of the article. And yeah, because they didn't mention his name. These people. They didn't mention his name in the title. Um, so, um, Real Cheeto. Yeah, we're t- what? Real Cheeto. Real Cheeto. Okay. All right, so let me read this article. Uh, it's Appalachian History. Um so it says by the 1820s and this was written by or posted by Dave Tabler in 2015 on March 19th the website is Appalachian 
history.net that usually covers the history of like areas of North Carolina, Tennessee, along that border, uh, the Appalachian Mountains and what have you. But it says that, oh, I'm, I'm just taking three pigs to market, Ohio's Underground Railroad. By the 1820s, several thousand African Americans had settled in Ohio. Early slave laws discouraged black settlement. In spite of the severe fines and penalties imposed by these laws, Ohioans were quite active in aiding fugitive victims of slavery on their journey north to freedom in Canada on the Underground Railroad Network. A number of small black communities sprang up in southeastern Ohio and quite often served as stations in quotations along this network of safe houses by necessity the routes of the underground railroad generally avoided cities cities where more people meant a greater risk of being caught they were often across areas of margin marginal farmland and wooded areas where houses were few anyone willing to take the risk might have been a conductor abolitionists clergy farmers teachers whites free blacks mulattoes native americans rich or poor some like harriet tubman are famous for their sacrifices but others work in secret and never told even their families of their involvement the threats of local pro-slavery people did not frighten the abolitionists says norris franz snyder in bridge city the story of zanesville and muskin gum County, Ohio, Muskingum County, Ohio, they not only held firmly to their opinions, uh, I would say their their righteous belief, but also helped escape victims, uh, escaping victims of slaves, slavery to reach freedom in Canada. For this aid, they were subject to a fine of $1,000 and imprisonment for six months under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which was enforced by Police, federal marshals, not just slave patrols. Law enforcement has long been involved. At least 25 Muskingum County families risked this punishment by operating stations on the Underground Railroad. This was a series of stations for transporting victims of slavery secretly to Canada, escaping victims of slavery crossed the Ohio River near Parkersburg or Point Pleasant and were conducted through Deaver Town to Zanesville and westward to New Concord on the way to Bloomfield and Koshokatan, I guess. Um, sounds like a, a indigenous word. Two northbound underground railroad lines through Rousseau and Pennsville came together at the home of Thomas L. Gray, a harness maker in Deavertown. One of Gray's trusted assistants was Rial Cheadle, teacher, peddler, keel boatman, and the maker of pewter buttons. On peddling trips to the South, Cheadle posed as a half-wit and entertained the victims of slavery with eccentric songs. The plantation slavers saw no connection between Cheadle's visit and the departures of their victims. But Cheeto always had several victims with them when he knocked at the door, friends, and hummed softly, I'm on my way to Canada where colored men are free. The first station one mile north of Deaverton was operated by Miss Alphadilla Deaver. Two miles further, victims were kept at the home of Henry, Henry Weller. Avoiding Roseville, the runaways found their next refuge at the home of Lydia, Lydia Stokely. The store and tan yard of Andrew Dugan, two and, one, two and one half miles above the Stokely Farm, gave the next haven. Two miles further north, the escaping victims found safety at the grist mill of Jos, Jos, uh, Josephus 
Pal, stations between his mill and Putnam were kept at the Five Mile House in the in the William Wiley, Cyrus Merriam, and Jenkins homes as these people concealed victims during the day and smuggled them to other stations at night. They had many amusing and exciting adventures. Grade one started to Roseville with three victims and realized that he was being watched. He had the three boys lie on the floor of the wagon and hold up their hands and feet. Then he threw a sheet over them. When some pro slavery men asked him what he was hauling, Gray replied, oh, I'm just taking three pigs to the market. This is the last paragraph. Affidilla Deaver started to Roseville one morning with several victims concealed on the bottom of the wagon beneath straw and produce. At the bottom of Wigton's Hill, the wagon stuck in the mud. Not daring to remove her load, she asked four pro-slavery farmers to assist her. Unknowingly, they helped the victims on their way to Canada. All right, and so we salute the... Uh, the Ohio's Underground Railroad. Reality. Salute. Yes, salute, man. Awesome. Uh, divine messaging in there. <laughs> no I, doubt I, about that. I'm excited about what you headed there. I'm going to try to get up to uh, Middletown and, and uh, come over and see you in person, Max. Good. I've got good, an old man. Air Force buddy of 40 years there, and we've been talking about how it's, it's strange that things are coming together. Hope to stay on this journey with you till we get it done, man. Yes, sir, man. There's some big plans involved here. You're just hearing about the, the you know, people just hearing about the beginnings of it. There's some big things in the future. I told you last week uh, that we have been promised now by the Human Rights Network that in 13 months we're going to have our first of uh, our congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment. That was a promise, and they etched it in stone, so to speak. So it's only about a year or two away before we start seeing some real fruit of this labors and uh, maybe getting a lot of people their freedom. And uh, uh, so we we got to work on getting a good contingent there to show the power of the movement. 13 months. It's not as long yeah. as you think. And we not don't need the 13th Amendment and any other symbols of slavery to remind us uh, that there are some racist uh, evil people out there in the world and I would say that you know some of them ain't, ain't even white you know but they working for white supremacy so let me clear that up uh, right now so you know so I'm looking forward that's very exciting news to hear uh, hu uh, um, congressional hearings on this human rights issue by yes, capable sir, people by very capable people I suspect I might, and you might as well. I know there would be a few of us who will probably be required to speak at that uh, circumstance, and I'm looking forward to that in particular. All right, well, our next, we only got a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to keep this really brief. It's our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, and we want to give a salute and say welcome to freedom to Desmond Ricks. He's 51, and he was released in May from prison after some tests supported his remarkable claim that Detroit police intentionally pinned him with a homicide in 1992. They had an analysis of two bullets that were taken from the victim and were still in police storage, and they showed that they didn't match the gun that was presented as a murder weapon, something that he had been saying all along. And with that new evidence, this brother managed to walk free. And now he's filing a lawsuit, as a matter of fact, and the lawsuit is for $100 million. 
because he feels that not only did the police frame him on purpose, but everybody involved with this whole court system also played a part in doing that. And he's doing it as a free man today. Welcome to freedom, Brother Desmond. Welcome to freedom. Salute. Salute. Welcome Salute. to freedom. On that... All right. Well, it's final comments for the evening time, and then we got to get out of here. Scotty or uh, Otis, anything? No, man, I'm happy to be aboard, and if if there's anything I can help you with with the research, just stay in touch tight or feel free to send me any message on something you need me to work on, man. Looking forward to it. Awesome, man. This year, my dedication, uh, I've dedicated myself to committing a a project, and that project is to forming a committee to work on the exception clauses of the state constitution. So if you're interested in being on that, I could use help. Yes, yes, I'm all for it. Indeed. And anybody who's listening, if you're interested, just reach out to me. I need to put together an initial team and we start need, need to start getting other people involved who have already gotten some experience for that. Anyway, uh, Scotty, any final comments? Um, no, except to say, well, yes, I'm going to say no and then speak. Yes, I have some final comments, Max. Um, that, I mean, the dominoes are falling. We're tipping on them from different directions. We're pushing. We're using energy. Uh, by, like Malcolm X said, by any means necessary. And we're seeing dominoes fall. I mean, just the very fact that you got people in the 21st century, and I'm not saying just those you hear on this program, but worldwide, you know, that's why Max is being invited to Ghana, okay? Worldwide acknowledging that the United States never abolished slavery and is represented by this, that, and the other, the symptoms. All these symptoms add up to slavery. So, you know, the dominoes are being tipped. They're falling. And I hope to be around when that last domino, slavery, falls. And peace to the abolitionists, death to the enslavers, as our brother Johannin would say. I miss Johannin. <clears throat> I, I do. Uh, haven't heard his voice in a while on here so uh, shout out to you brother hold it down wherever you at um, I have only a minute left so I'm just going to keep it real brief uh, I don't do this for me I do it for us and for my children and my grandchildren and your grandchildren and their grandchildren I mean we need to put our future into place now by getting rid of this dangerous past and which has become our present end uh, slavery how simple can it get try that we haven't done it yet it's some new stuff and slavery but first you got to recognize that it does exist and also you need to remember that abolition that real slavery abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace peace Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up